Welcome back to the Property Management Show. I'm your host, Marie Tepman from Four and Half Marketing Agency. With over a decade of expertise in the property management marketing field, we have made it our mission to help property managers like you get more owner leads to grow your business. From website design to SEO, content creation, online reputation management, pay-per-click ads, and all that good stuff, we've got you covered. Visit our website forandhalf.com to learn how to reach new heights with your business this year. Our website is f-o-u-r-a-n-d-h-a-l-f.com. We invited back the great Greg Crabtree on our show to talk about marketing spend and ROI on marketing. If you don't know him, he is an accomplished entrepreneur, financial expert, and the author of Simple Numbers, which is a book that every business owner should have read by now. Welcome back to the show, Greg. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Great to be here. I'm so excited. And so the last time we had you on the show, it was right at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic mm-hmm. and we were talking about cash flow. And I remember you making this comment about how the first thing to go on the chopping block in terms of budget cuts is marketing. And mm-hmm. it was a, you know, uh, a small comment back then, but today I kind yep. of want to flesh that out a little bit more. Can sure. can you kind of explain um, like why that, behavior exists in businesses? Well, I've always looked at marketing spend as kind of the canary in the coal mine. So if you if you look back, you know, with data, you know, across multiple businesses so that you're not just getting one singular input, you're going to find that anytime the economy is truly slowing down, people are going to save their marketing spend because, you know, if you, you may not cut it to zero, but why would you spend extra money on marketing when there's not a customer that's going to respond to that? And so save your powder for another day. And so traditionally, cutting marketing spend to me was always the first true indicator of a true softening of the economy. Uh, but then marketing was also the first cost to be turned up when confidence and market you know, potential was was being able to be seen. Like, okay, let's feed the hand. Let, let's try to try to grow it. And clearly, you know, one of the things in our practice, you know, for your listeners to know that, so in our simple numbers consulting practice, um, one of the things that we do is, you know, I'll listen to government statistics or anything that people put out about the economy, but I trust most of what we see in our own clients' data. And so as I was doing the research for the second book, Simple Numbers 2.0, I, I created a model that we aggregated clients' uh, data as if it was one big conglomerate. And because we don't make a specialty in any one industry, it was a blend of industries. We don't make a specialty geographically. We have clients all over the U.S., uh, in Canada, Australia, a few other random spots around the world. We, we leave those out of the economic model because I want to focus on just U.S. economic statistics. Uh, and we've expanded that, that model to 100 companies. And so we call it the 100 companies simple numbers model that gives us our economic insight of what we think is actually happening rather than, you know, a few anecdotal comments from this discussion or that discussion. And what was fascinating is as soon as COVID hit, <laughs> marketing spend for that about a billion dollars worth of business so it's it's not a not a small model and uh, marketing spend dropped about 60 percent you know right at the beginning of covid and a lot of our clients are marketing sensitive companies or marketing agencies themselves and trust me they they felt it um the better ones didn't see as big of a drop but they certainly had a softness and once again you know the you had you know, kind of an interesting thing happened. There were businesses that were shut. Well, why would I market if my business is shut? Obviously, I'm going to turn it off. But you also had other businesses that were going through the roof that businesses was coming to them faster. They didn't need to market. They, why would I spend money on marketing? Because I got, I got more business than I can respond to anyway. And so those companies cut marketing spend. And so it actually took a little over 12 months past that initial drop at the beginning of COVID in April of, of 20, 2020, it took over 12 months for the run rate to get back to the pre-COVID level. Now, fast forward, 
So gone through a lot of crazy stuff since Mm -hmm. March of 2020. And we've had companies that had incredibly good fortunes and they stayed there. We've had companies that had incredibly good fortunes and -hmm. gave it all back. And we've had companies that had a really bad outcome at the beginning because of forced closure and a handful, not many went out of business, but a handful said I'm done, Mm -hmm. but a good many that had that downturn are just now getting back to, okay, things are working. And the biggest issue across, uh, across the ones that are trying to get back into business is the labor issue They, they they're finding that, What they used to do at the price they used to sell, it doesn't work. So they've got to raise prices to cover the cost that it takes to get a capable person to do the job, even if they can find that person. Uh, We we still, I would still say over 50% of our clients have more demand that they can't access because they don't have capacity. It's not a question about generating new sales. It's a question of, I don't have the people, I don't have the capability you know, to deliver on that product or service. Mm -hmm. And I got news for you, folks. This is a population problem. This is a problem that COVID didn't cause. Mm -hmm. This is a problem that had already been set in motion years before now. And, and when I do my talks on pricing strategy, you know, I, I refer to, you know, if you go back in the U S back in 2001, we were about about a 2.4 replacement birth rate today. The U S is about a 1.6 stable society is a 2.1 so we we've set ourselves and the only thing that that can help the u.s has an advantage over the rest of the world at least today we're still a desirable place for somebody to come here from another country but we are not filling that birth gap you know with immigrants at the moment i mean and you know and, and so it's not a popular thing for some people you know there's people that are against it I got news for you folks. I mean, you know, there's a point that you got to have more people that come on shore because we're not birthing them. I, you know, I, I did my part guys. I I had four kids, but my kids are not doing their part. I've only got four granddaughters and I keep telling my kids they're underperforming and they're saying, sorry, this is probably all you're going to get. And and it's like, okay, you know, but, um, but I mean, it's a serious problem and it's a serious problem globally. And you've got quite a few countries around the world that are in what refer to as a, 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 an inverted pyramid from population. If you look at the bands of numbers of people, male and female, in each of the generations, it is used to a stable society that was growing would be a pyramid structure. Fewer mm-hmm. people at the top, more people at the bottom. Then you have the golden age, which the U.S. just came out of is the chimney stack. You've got roughly the same number of people in each generation. Mm-hmm. And we've now started to do this. We started to come in and we don't have enough people. And so if you are a, a desirable job, if you're, you know, work in a nice environment, work with pleasant people, you know, you're probably going to do okay. But if your job has any element of difficulty, stress, dirty, smelly, challenging, you're going to have some problems and, you know, cold, hot, um, because there's alternatives that these people have never had before in almost every wage category that exists. Uh And the other issue, and I'll I'll just put this out there too, is, oh, by the way, the bottom half of the wage categories, you know, if you take the labor, labor group in total, take the median, the bottom half of the wage uh, group, has had the greatest wage percentage increase in the history of that group and more so than the upper half, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so the upper half have actually lagged a bit. Um, and you, we've seen some of this in some of the tech layoffs and, and some of those, but those, those people got sopped up pretty quick. I mean, those, those people did not hit the unemployment line because mm-hmm. unemployment fell again, you know, to 3.4%, you know, last week. So, so all of that's to say this, as the so-called economy is slowing, as everybody's talked about in the last six months, well, what have we seen now? Mm-hmm. Marketing spend has not dropped. Marketing spend is actually continuing to increase. Now, here's 
here's the reason for that that I can discern. We're in a stage now to where, okay, as I just said, the U.S. was in this golden age of the the, the chimney stack population, and and part of it is my generation is part of the problem. I'm in, I'm the end of the baby boomers, and so here's the thing everybody needs to know. You know, your highest production and earnings capacity is the last 10 years that you work. And guess what? 2019, 2020, somewhere around in that time frame, pretty much the decade of the teens from 2010 to 2020, that's, that was the last 10 years of the vast majority of the baby boomers that said, we're done, see ya, I'm retiring. Mm-hmm. And there's not replacement workers to fill the gap. And so there's two things that happen with that. And contrary to previous generations, this, the, the decade of the teens, I contend, and, and this is difficult to measure, but my, my assessment from my clients and the data that I've got access to, I think it was the greatest economic growth decade that the U.S. has ever experienced. Mm-hmm. And those baby boomers retired with more money than their previous, their ancestors. And, and they retired with a pretty developed habit of consumption that is breaking the pattern of previous retiree generations that as you get older, you spend less. I got news for you. This generation kind of still likes to spend money. And so, and, and that's a good thing to a point, but it's creating demand that doesn't produce. So the people that are, you know, you know, when, when you, you know, I'm still worried, even though I'm part of that generation, I'm the idiot that keeps working because I like what I do. But if, if you and I, you and I both have jobs, we make income and we consume, but you have excess demand when you have a group of people that's really large and larger than everybody else that is consuming, but not producing. And guess what that causes? inflation and it's not about interest rates it is about we have too much demand in the marketplace period across all things then we have people to produce it and that's not you know you can't you can't birth a baby and grow it you know you can't compress that 20-year period of creating a worker overnight it takes 20 years and and oh by the way the birth rate is still falling it's not getting better and so you know, I, I totally disagree with what the Fed's doing with interest rates because they need to learn to understand that we're going to have to probably learn to live with about five to seven percent inflation just because of the wage issue, unless they walk across the street there in D.C. and start talking to those congressmen and saying, hey, you know, we're maybe from the Federal Reserve, but you guys might need to work on this immigration thing and get us some more people so we can bring down the pressure on increasing wages. Well, that's not politically happy, uh, you know, uh, you know, for people because you got labor unions and all, and, and there's a lot of people who are just totally against it one way or the other. I don't care if you're for it or against it. I'm just looking at the, the economic facts of it and saying, until you solve that problem, you got an issue. Well, you take all of those things and get it back to the, the topic at hand of the question of marketing. Well, we're in this situation to where we don't have this massively expanding economy and not going to have it because there's no people to do it. So you would think that marketing spend would go down. No, no, it actually has to increase. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're seeing is because People are, if if you're a business that is going to try to grow, you're not going to get it handed to you by an expanding economy. You've got to go take it away from somebody else, Mm. which is you're going to see a far more expensive but necessary aggressive form of marketing that creates differentiation of what you're doing versus what your, your competitor is doing. And, and, oh, by the way, not only do you have to market more aggressively, you're going to have to operate better than they are and hope that they fail and go out of business and just hand you some of their customers as well. Because there's a finite number of, of capacity as well as customers. How do you see this impacting property management? Um, because, you know, I know that when, when COVID hit, everyone was kind of like standstill, like we kind of want to wait and see. Um, and right. so- 
a lot of people kind of stop their marketing. They kind of don't know what's going to happen. Um, you obviously work with um, a number of property management companies mm. as well. Like, have you noticed um, a trend, um, you know, post-COVID? Yeah, I mean, so in, in the world of property management, you got a lot, you got a couple of very distinct cross currents. And so, so let's take property management and separate it into two buckets. So you've got uh, res, uh, multifamily residential, maybe single family residential. So let's just put, let's put everything in the, the, the housing market is one bucket and then everything else in the other types of property management of retail, commercial property and those things. And, and so I, I think you're going to see two dramatically divergent outcomes between commercial and retail property versus residential rental. The, the residential rental has a lot of activity, you know, continuing and finishing of projects that were funded. Um, that there's probably going to continue to be, even given the interest rates, continued M&A activity of, of people, you know, getting into the residential market. And even more so, I would predict continued demand there because new housing starts have stalled because of mortgage rates. And if you're in a part of the country that is having positive state-to-state -state migration, you are running behind because e even in Florida, which definitely has positive, you know, state-to-state -state migration, they are the the the, the track building companies have stopped any new uh, housing developments for the most part because they don't trust where the interest rates are going and they don't they have they don't, no clue is when fed's going to come off of this ridiculous position that they have um and and so so when you look at it that way i i think there's there's two things for property managers to understand number one is you need to keep marketing for new companies for you to manage because there's a good chance that you're going to lose some of your existing customers through acquisition it's just the nature of the beast. So through no fault of your own as a property manager, you know, the, the ones that, that we work with, I mean, this is kind of a common thing that you feel like you got it going, everything's going great. And then boom, oh, I just lost, you know, one of my best customers because they sold. And, and trust me, there's plenty of money out there trying to find a place to go. And multifamily is an easy place to deploy a large amount of money. And we're at, historic highs in occupancy rates and we're at historic rates of return in terms of rents you know to you know the cost and now there's a point one of the one of my long-term fears in the the residential rental market is there's been discussion of uh, rent control mm -hmm. not only on a local basis but on a national basis and oh i mean if you really want to create something nasty and ugly you know if they do if they do anything along those lines and and to a certain degree they can potentially do it not by legislation but through bureaucracy of if you've got a fannie mae a, a, a federal uh, home loan uh, bank uh, it, so if you're if you got one of the federal you know loan agencies that that gave you debt they can potentially mandate you know rules of operation you know, and and, and I, I probably got out over my skis in terms of what they can do or can't do. But but certainly the idea is if they even start moving towards trying to propose regulations that then go into effect and those things, you, you create a lot of negative outcomes, you know, in terms of property values and, and those things. Um, I will tell you a secondary you know problem, you know, to this that you need to be clued in on. And we just I just had a discussion with a, a property client of mine that you know we we do regular calls with and he he just got this enormous property tax increase and i mean to the extent that it almost makes the property which is at a very nice rental rate but it almost think, makes that property property almost unviable oh. based on the property tax increase and so that's kind of another alarm bell, you know, then the, the, the everything is not all, you know, uh, you know, sunshine and roses, you know, that there are some, those two things coming down the pike. If you flip back over to the, the, res, the commercial property and retail, uh, 
I, I still think retail's got a lot of things to figure out. I mean, this world that we live in of online purchases and most of the big store chains that used to populate a lot of the centers, you know, have really pulled back. So you, you kind of had a lot of me too activity in of the retail space that's available in the high density areas. It, it, they, they've almost gone to the easy solution of let's just pick the things of, a, you know, a grocery store, a nail salon, um, you know, a, a restaurant or two, you know, the, you know, but, but, you know, th there's getting to be not a, a significant range of retail stores like you used to see. And, and I think there's still a lot of, of disruption and, and we're getting word of a lot of centers that have multiple empty spots and with no rent and there's no opportunity to increase rents. Well, the thing is, eventually those properties will probably have a reset in their mortgage. Most of those are typically not on long-term mortgages. A lot of the commercial property, I think I heard a stat that a third of commercial properties have a, a reset of their interest rate, you know, at least every year. Well, if that's the case, we're, we're, we're out of the mortgage deferral options and things from COVID. So, you know, it's very likely we could see some real carnage, you know, in the commercial property space because, you know, common commercial property is people don't go back to the office. Although we've, we've seen a more of a migration back to the offices, both, you know, ourselves as well as clients, but we're not ever going to get back to where we were. And so most everybody has, you know, 40% of their office space that they don't need. And a lot of them are rethinking even at that, they want a more dense office arrangement like the office I'm sitting in now. I'm not in an office. I'm in a pod. And and so I, I don't even sit in an office anymore. And so these are pods that, you know, that staff member can come in, plug in. Somebody else can plug in at the same station, you know, if I'm not here tomorrow. And, and so there, there's not really a need to have this place, you know, anymore. And so as people start to redesign, rethink workspace, um, there's less of it needed. Now, eventually the prices kind of adjust and you have to charge what you charge, but there's a lot of settling out on the commercial space. And so the property managers who are managing commercial property, eh, you know, I feel for them. I mean, they, they, they've got a really complex situation they have to manage through. Yeah. I mean, a, a local mall here in the San Francisco Bay Area is even doing extensive like user experience research. Um, mm -hmm. And they keep creating these events to invite community members to the to the to the mall, basically, mm -hmm. and ask their opinion of like, you know, how do you see this space now? And how would you wish this space uh, to be used. They did one right before COVID and then they're doing it again now, I think, because they realize people's priorities may have changed after such a big disruption. And yeah. um, it, it's just interesting. The, um, you know, I kind of checked it out and some ideas were to kind of create it as more like a community center rather than like a traditional mall where it's community center that, uh, that drives people to go there. And then the businesses in the mall are carefully curated to kind of like add on to that experience. It's a completely different way of doing it versus before, right? The yeah. commercial space is like, oh, we build it, people come. Now it's more like we need to figure out how to get people to come, get off their couch. Yeah, that, that that's that's what I call flawed research, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, people are telling you something that they want that there is no economic engine to make happen mm -hmm. uh, other than, you know, somebody with more money than brains opens up their pocketbook and pays for it. You know, and, and it's like that kind of stuff eventually crumbles. Mm -hmm. and, and and so the idea is commerce is commerce. And I, and I think what you're going to see is you're going to see more. Um, I'll, I'll give you a good example. In retail, Orvis strikes me. It, it, my interactions with them is they, they obviously have an online presence. But if you go into their stores, or at least the ones my wife and I have gone into, um, they're you know, they don't really care. They're agnostic of whether or not you buy it in the store, buy it online, buy it online, ship it to the store to try it on. They're, they're good with all of it. And so I think to me, that is, as a, as a cost analyst and looking at, I want to create profit any way that I can. And so 
if you really think about it in retail, a store is marketing expense. I mean, if, if I can sell it online or I can sell it physically present in the store, the only difference between the two is that physical store and the cost of operation outside of the things that it takes for, for them to, you know, to do the transaction that this, the same effect would be if, we, if they did it online, that store truly becomes my, my marketing expense and say, is it worth it? And, and there again, instead of seeing, you know, a brand launch and, and put out a thousand units, they're going to launch, they're going to pick 50 to 100 to maybe 200 of the most valuable places for them to be seen in. You know, you know, New York on Fifth Avenue and those kind of things, you know, but but it gets to be where, you know, if you're in Atlanta, Nashville, uh, you know, Dallas, you know, you're going to be in, in some of the signature shopping areas, but you're not going to be everywhere because you, you know, it, you know, this is how warped I am. You know, I walk around looking at the thinking of the economics, every store I walk into and I go, how are they surviving? You know, and and you realize they are not getting enough people past the cash register to to make make it work, and and I think that marketplace is is going to settle itself out. And a lot of these companies are just you know they're either waiting for leases to end, and then they're going to pull back you know and and reset. But I think you'll see more of that mindset, and you know eventually you know you could see. You can see a trend of places like the Targets of the world or the, the mm -hmm. department stores almost work in partnership with the brands. And you would see like many stores within the big store of that brand that, that they're they're essentially marketing and, and you know, to create traffic. But it, it's going to change. I mean, there, there's, there's no doubt, you know, that, um, you know, that it, it's not going to, you know, the indoor malls are, are, you know, certainly a dying breed, you know, but even some of the strip centers, you know, that proliferated, you know, pre-COVID, e even those have kind of lost their luster and they're struggling, you know, to stay at occupancy, mm -hmm. um, you know, from that standpoint. Yeah. And so to kind of go back to the residential property management mm -hmm. side of things, um, given all the things that are happening right now, how should a small business who's doing residential property management think about their marketing budget in relation to their overall budget? Well, it, it's less about a budget as it is about finding what's effective. And so, you know, I'm asked that question, you know, how much should I spend on marketing? It says, well, you just spend every, every amount you can on marketing as long as it's effective, you know? So the key is find out what's effective, what works for you. And, and so, you know, and, and once again, you know, all techniques are worthy and, and you just have to do the things to make, whether it's, you know, online marketing uh, or, um, or whether it's in-person traditional go knock on doors and find people or, you know, and, and do more traditional business development type marketing, they all work and, and they all fail. And, and, and so, so the idea is it's really about of that spend that you make, it's more about the return on investment concept of what I wrote about in the Simple Numbers 2.0 book is, is really this idea. We look at especially, you know, ongoing and surge marketing spends, you know, that that's really where I've got to be able to recover that cost and improve profitability by 50% of that cost that I spent. And so that kind of becomes the standard. And, and so we, we call that launch capital. So launch capital is where I'm trying to grow the business through my P&L. So you think of capital typically is, okay, I got to invest in receivables and inventory. I got to invest in equipment or a building. And I got to invest, you know, I got, I got to have cash, you know, to, to create a stable operating environment without having to over borrow money. Those are the, the three building blocks of, of, of capitalizing an operating business. The vast majority of businesses, though, grow through their P&L by diminishing current profitability of spending an expense to then get somewhere else in the future. Because mm -hmm. nobody stuck a gun to your head and made you spend it. You chose to spend it. I could have made $100,000 in profit this year, but I chose to spend $50,000 on a new 
um, marketing campaign to go win new business. Well, great. That just means that my real profit for the year was 100,000. My launch capital spend was 50. And I need to make sure that I make um, enough profit to, to cover the 50 and make 25 more in, in, in the next year. And, and so in essence, I, I essentially need to make, um, you know, I need to get back to 125,000 of profit, which would have recovered the cost of that 50 and made me $25,000 more. And so that's, that's the way that we look at it. And I mean, if I could tell you, Hey, do this step one, two, three, and, and it works every time, you know, I, I, I could retire. Um, and, you know, nobody knows the answer to that. You know, marketing, uh, I, I refer to marketing as the great black art. I mean, there's there's just not a formula, but there are patterns of things that work. And you, it, it's, I, I, to me, I think the best analogy is you're, you're playing a blackjack hand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you, you feed 25, you know, I'm betting 25 bucks on this hand and uh, I win. Okay, well, you know, I, I, I get some extra money. It's like, well, I don't take everything that I want and put it right back into it. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, the odds are, you know, but I, I'm going to, instead of betting 25 a hand, I'm going to bet 35 a hand. Okay, and then, then I'm going to feed it, and, you know, and I'm going to, you know, and keep working my way. And as I keep climbing and having success, I'm just going to keep feeding the hand. And, but if, but I'm not going to keep throwing more money at it when there really just isn't you know any opportunity there and and that kind of is one of the things we've really harped on you know when i do talks of late is you know this is an interesting marketplace that you got to ask two questions of the market is the market allowing me to be profitable at the moment and is the market allowing me to grow at the moment Mm -hmm. so i'll give you a good example if you're a, a real estate um brokerage business that sells single family homes is the market allowing you to be profitable right now nope you, you can try all you want to you are not if you're you know you might be a single agent that is making a living but as an agency with the operating cost for you to run an agency of other agents you are not profitable right now it just ain't, ain't happening and you can throw all the marketing money you want to try to create demand and it ain't happening either because it's about interest rates. And so save your money, save your spend and wait, just try to you know hold on and hope that the Fed comes back or the consumers finally realize, okay, well, if interest rates are going to be 6%, here's how much consistent demand we're going to have at 6% interest on the 30 year mortgage. I hope we don't get to that point, you know, but could be. You know, if you're a mortgage lender, you're in the same boat. You're the you're the cousin to the real estate guy. You know, so it's like you ain't you ain't producing mortgages right now either. And my mortgage client, you know, he said the other day he had to lay off 165 mortgage lenders. And it's like I mean, it it, it wasn't because they were performing poorly. It wasn't because he didn't like them. He loved them. And this is a, this is a very family oriented business. He could not afford to feed them because there's no fees coming in from mortgages being done. You can't, you know, so you got to hang on. You got to, you know, it's, you know, this is when when business sucks is when you're living out the lifeboat theory of who gets to, who gets to stay and who has to leave. The good news is hundred percent of those people can find jobs and be employed in 15 minutes. They may not be doing exactly what they want to do, but, but they can find a job. They, they can earn income. And that's the weird thing about this situation of, of the businesses that are that are being knocked back. Those those people aren't being thrown out on the streets and they're not on the bread lines and they're not drawing unemployment. They, they've got other alternative things that they can do. And welcome to this cross current of an economy that I think we're going to be in for the next three to five years at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting take on it, right? Um, like some industries just happen to be dealt a bad hand, and mm-hmm. other industries just happen to be dealt a good hand. And you know, you have to make hard decision hard decisions if you are dealt a bad hand. But what it seems like is, you know, even though some other um 
aspects of property management, like in commercial, got mm. a bad hand, the real estate, not very lucrative right now. But residential property management, like people still need a place to live. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Um, especially because interest rates are so high, people who may sure. want wanted to have bought houses can't. And so they're just renting or people okay. who wanted to sell maybe can't get the price they wanted. And so they're renting instead of selling. And so right. it's this luck of the draw, right? So property managers, I feel like are positioned for like exciting years ahead. Um, but you also mentioned that the way to think about marketing spend isn't the traditional like X percent of my revenue should be right. spent on marketing versus XYZ. It's more like um, what, what I guess what risk you're willing to take and then mm -hmm. what is the potential return that you think you can right. get, but knowing it's right. not guaranteed. And you've, and, and I, I, you know, I'd really challenge my clients when they talk about, you know, a marketing spend, you know, plan coming up. I says that that's great. What do you expect to create from this? Like, let, let's create an expectation. And then I'll go through that math that I just explained and show them. I says, well, is, is, is this what you expect to do? Because if it is, then I'm okay with this. If you expect less than that, then this isn't a good plan. Go back and I, I'm okay with spending the money, but you're, you're not, the way you have it planned, you're not getting enough, you know, uh, juice for the squeeze. Mm -hmm. And and so we, we got to think differently. I think the other thing that people have a tendency to do is you, you want to put marketing on a consistent kind of maintenance spend. And I just, you know, uh, you know, I mean, I'm just a chicken farmer. So what do I know? But I, I, I just think a lot of people need to do a little more surge and pause, surge and pause, because as a consumer, I get annoyed when I'm over messaged and, and I think people get a little too desperate in some of their marketing activities where you do more damage than good rather than being that constant reminder. And, and I was talking to one of our, our managed service provider IT clients and, and I was asking them, I said, you know, where, where's your leads coming from? What, what, what's working? And they said, you know, it's, it's really about, you know, just staying in touch with people that, you know, you've identified as a good potential target. You're not wearing them out with, Hey, let me talk to you. Let me, let me do a proposal. You're, you're giving them value and, and reminding them that you're there, that, the moment that their current provider slips up, can't do what they need, doesn't know the answer to their problem, but you've positioned yourself as you've been in their ear and, and, and you're, you're willing to be patient. And I think you're going to see a lot more patient approaches to marketing. But, and, and as I said, my, my biggest fear of all, all my property management clients is don't just because you're full, you're busy, you're profitable right now, don't stop marketing because you need to be doing that patient marketing still of reminding your your target people that you want as a customer that you're there, that you're paying attention to the marketplace, you're alerting them to you know the things that we've talked about of danger clouds on the horizon. Hey, you know, have your is your property manager, you know, looked into, you know, potential, you know, when when does your next property tax assessment come up? And you know, hey, we're starting, you know, give them warnings of, hey, we're starting to see property taxes increase, you know, as property values have increased, and it's a it's a tax grab by the the taxing authorities. And you know, being the source of information, you know. When, when their current people are kind of just taking care of the noise of business day in and day out, I, I think that that goes a lot longer than, than I, I totally hey, let me, let me send you a proposal. Yeah, mm -hmm. kind of deal. Yeah. yeah, what's interesting that you mentioned this um, slower, more long-term approach to marketing is that most people, when they think of spending about marketing, they want the fastest ROI. And um, a lot of times, even when they can be convinced to try out more like 
the slower kind of marketing, like a, a lot of it is content marketing, right? Like what right, we're doing right, right now, like you create content that provides value to people that you, you give to them. That's not pushy. It's not like, Hey, sign up with me. It's like, Hey, here's something valuable that I think could help you run your business better. And it's very like, mm. you know, um, very, you know, low stakes, but we, I've noticed that like, there are, there are, uh, co company owners that get too impatient with that like when well when right. am I going to see the leads like right. oh it's been two months like I haven't gotten a lead out of those like blogs or whatever that you've posted for me and um, I I really agree with you that marketing should be thought of as an investment um, it like you have to wait like you said right surge pause surge pause um, mm. And to me, I interpret that in two ways. Like you don't want to overwhelm people with so much mes messaging that they just block you. But at the same time, you also need time to wait. Like you put out something, it right. takes time to kind of have run its course and give you results. Yeah. yeah I mean, you, you know, I've always felt like, I mean, if, if you if you go to that potential customer with something of value, then you know, you've got a more likely, you know, chance of, of getting a, you know, a positive response. If I'm really just talking, you know, you know, being the loudest billboard, you know, I'm probably going to attract the customers that I may not want because those are the people that are kind of desperate and it, it's just who does, who have they last heard from? And that's the, you know, they're in a, you know, their hair's on fire and, you know, all, yeah. all things are going wrong. And so that, going to people with something of value and and you know and unfortunately every now and then i have to tell a client that their baby's ugly um you know you know you, you sometimes need to make sure that your offering is really what the marketplace is asking for mm -hmm. you know are you really addressing the pain of the customer and you have a solution and you know versus you know you're just you're just doing the same thing and and, um, you know, trying to beat them on price or, you know, one thing or another. And, you know, to me, one of the nice things that with the way the economy is at the moment and where I think it's going, you're going to see less success of the price competition because one of the things our hundred company model is, is telling us that it scares me the most is we got this ever increasing rate of, of revenue, but profit dollars are flat. I mean, flat, I mean, 18 months of rolling 12 flat profit for about a $1.3 billion of activity. That's not good. That's telling us that we're inflating, we keep inflating the prices and charging more, but it's, it's not producing anything more. And eventually the activity load of more and more activity for the same profit dollars you you start to you're going to run into a problem there's just not enough there and that's where the the weaker companies that makes up that those 100 companies they'll fail and they'll they'll drop out and then that business has to reprice go to the better you know operators who will charge you know and and we, we've seen this we, we've seen people that just are psychologically challenged to um you know, to charge enough for what you do. And, mm -hmm. and in the world of operations of property management, once again, I mean, it, it, property management's a hard business. I mean, I, I always like to de de define it as, listen, you know, you got to find a special purpose person who's willing to come to work every day, knowing that they're going to have an unpleasant experience, you know, with somebody that, that they're working for. And, and, and like I said, this labor market is getting softer and softer by the day. And a lot of people are choosing, you know, not to, you know, not, not to take on that kind of a job. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so now, so what that tells you is the tradition of charging percentages of rents collected as a means to collect your revenue is highly flawed because it's not really a calculation of the true value. And so you're, you know, that they, 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 you know, it's been done that way for centuries because, oh, well, you know, you should you should collect more revenue for me. Well, I mean, for right now, you, you're probably getting potentially overcompensated to a point, 
but yet that overcompensation is probably covering the fact that you've had wage inflation. So you've actually have a gain. You just stayed still. Here's where the whiplash effect comes in. Yeah. When you do have some weakness and you have some occupancy uh, problems and that percentage comes down, but my wage cost didn't change. I just got compressed and might even flip. And, and so once again, I, I think you're starting to see some people challenge the long-term philosophies of, of operation in the industry of saying the percentage method of comp might need to be relooked at. And matter of fact, you have a big lawsuit right now in the world of, uh, of uh, residential uh, real estate about uh, some of the companies are being challenged by the, the uh, court system about um, unfair trade practices of the buyer's commission mm-hmm. and saying that, you know, I, you know, that that's an unfair thing. Well, the reality is if anything, the buyer's commission ought to be higher. They're the ones that get worn out running people around showing them 10,000 properties before they sometimes buy and sometimes don't. Yeah. Versus the se- the seller is the one. I mean, all the real estate a- agents gravitate to the listing and the seller side mm-hmm. because you don't do as much work on the sell side as you do on the buy side. And and what could ultimately happen, and this will be the first sign that starts to break people away from the percentage concept, is when if that lawsuit goes through, you're going to see people have to charge a fee to be a buyer's representative. And it won't be a percent of the sale. Mm-hmm. It'll be a fee. What was that fee? What's it worth? You know, for me to run you around town and show you stuff. Yeah, so it'll be a changing marketplace. So, yeah, there's a lot of change about. Um, and so, um, to go back to residential property management. Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned kind of like a better way to think about a market, how much to spend on marketing. It's not about mm-hmm. budget. It's not a percentage of revenue. It's more about. Right. Um, assessing the risk level and like what you're willing to kind of bet um, to -hmm. see if it works and if it works, you can bet more and then move from there. But in terms of the, the, like their books, like what is best practice in terms like what goes under like the marketing um, budget? Mm -hmm. Like, is it just your ad spend? If you, if you like do a campaign, um, are there other ancillary um, costs that should be counted under marketing for when you're assessing your return on investment? I, I mean, I, I generally count anything that's spent, you know, to a third party. So if, if I have a marketing person on staff, I generally include that, that person in my management labor bucket because they generally those people might be in, in charge of it, but they, they usually do more things than just marketing, you know, but, but I, I want to, I'm tracking the external spend that that's what you, you turn up and turn down. Mm-hmm. So anything from agencies to billboards, to ad spend, to sponsorships, you know, I, I, a lot of, a lot of people, I mean, sponsorships are great, you know, but there's a lot of people who spend money on sponsorships and you are not getting a return on investment from that. And, I get mm-hmm. it, you know, so don't lie to yourself, but, but, but that's where you put it. And I want people to hold it accountable. Um, you know, uh, if you use any third party, you know, resources for temp labor to execute on some of those things, you know, certainly, you know, those would go there, but that, you know, that that's pretty much all we put into it. Mm, so if you have like internal employees that maybe use like 20% of the time, like coordinating all the vendors, like you don't necessarily Nah, I, oh. I, I think you're you're splitting hairs at that point. Mm, I see. And then especially the idea being if if I just live with the work I got and I'm not going to market at all, I'm just going to wait for inbound leads Would that person's job go away. And in, and in most of these cases, it won't. Mm. So no, they, they don't they don't go in there. Now, some of our clients who really do have one or two people of marketing staff, but generally not in your industry, um, you know, those those people we will still count them in management labor, but when I'm doing marketing effectiveness calculations, I'm taking both that number uh, and the wage number and add them together to look at a marketing effectiveness of how much margin am I creating relative to my ongoing marketing spend. And and the, the one metric that I've looked at across time is, you know, I, I look at, you know, you know, probably what the industry would call gross profit. I call it contribution margin. So 
after after you get fees after your direct labor uh, of, that that works on um, you know the um, you know managing the properties. Uh, I get the contribution margin. Rolling twelve contribution margin is the numerator. Marketing spend rolling twelve is the is the denominator. And so, how much contribution margin am I producing relative to my ongoing marketing spend for the last twelve months? And then, as I look at that number across time, I'm just looking at it and saying, is it going up? Is it going down? And at least gives me a sight line of a trend. That that's more so saying, you know, that's that that that's really a, at least a reasonably effective way of saying, am I getting more signal output for the dollar spent? Mm. And so I'm imagining then that sales related activities, um, you typically would separate them because mm. um, a lot of people like to blend them together because. They think marketing and sales go hand in hand. Right. Some of them hire like business development managers who kind of sort of do marketing because they do like outbound type stuff. And so um, when when uh, activities between sales and marketing kind of start sounding similar or cross together in the executive's mind, um, it is tempting to kind of bundle them together. But I'm sensing that's not a good practice. Nah, I, I, I generally try to, to distinctly separate them. I mean, business development, I've always said, is, is kind of the sloppy term for s taking marketing and sales and shoving it into one person. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, because fundamentally, so, I mean, so, you know, we've all been taught to say sales and marketing. Well, that's wrong. I mean, last time I checked, marketing must 100% of the time precede sales. There's never been a sale happen without some form of marketing that happened first. And so why don't we say marketing and sales? Well, it's because the salespeople have sold us on sales and marketing because they think they're more important. And it's like, no, I, I, I would tell you, if, you know, if you're really, really effective at marketing, sales is a pretty simple process of just scoping and closing. And with, you know, it's more of a customer service checkout transaction, you know, than it is a sales transaction. If you've really been good at, at communicating feature values benefits through your marketing efforts would you say that's true even for recurring revenue businesses that are service-based like property management absolutely absolutely i the the idea of sales if you think about it sales is is this thing of you know you, you know when you say sales you think of insurance salesman mm -hmm. well insurance salesman looks at the word no is just the precursor to yes I mean, so, I mean, they're, they're Teflon. I mean, you know, they're, they're not going to, not going to take no for an answer, you know, and, and the, the public just does not like to respond that way anymore. And more so than ever, a, a more informed, more capable, you know, buyer, you know, they really, they, if, in, in, like I was saying before, if you're really effective in your marketing, you're going to answer and know all of that customer's pains before you even meet them because you you know the industry you know what it is that everybody struggles with and you know the answers that will you know bring salve to the wounds that the business causes you know when you don't have the right provider and you know and if you're good at telling the story telling the you know features and benefits you know then i mean i, I mean I, I, will, I will tell you i mean you know, I mean, we're fortunate with what I do with simple numbers because, I mean, we, we, we're blessed with, you know, plenty of inbound leads that we just respond to. I don't even have to poke the market. But when I see my fellow accountants try to market, oh, gosh, I mean, I'm, I'm so embarrassed. I mean, you know, it's like you are, you're missing it. You are not you're not addressing the issue that the entrepreneur needs. And. You know, and, and it's, it's, it's just a lack of awareness, you know? Yeah. And so I have one final question. Mm -hmm. How does customer lifetime value factor into figuring out how good of a return you got out of the marketing spend? It, it's my least favorite metric of any metrics of any type of all time. I'm not a fan of the lifetime value customer. I, I, it's such a made up and, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, like I said, you're, you're trying to deal with periods of time and, 
and, and also the idea is customer value ebbs and flows across time. There's times that a customer is not that great of a customer in the beginning because they were needy and you spent too much time dealing with them. And, but over time they settled down and they really became a great customer. Mm-hmm. And then there's people that were great customers early and then they became a nightmare later. And, and so there's, there's just not a consistent way of knowing that number, you know, really across time that you can look at it like a financial instrument, because that's what lifetime value customer is designed to take that customer and turning into a government bond and, mm-hmm. and calculating yield. And I'm, I'm sorry, you know, yes, you can do that math exercise, but there's way too much subjectivity, you know, thrown into the equation. And, and so ultimately, I look at models from the standpoint of going, hey, what, you know, what do I need to do to create enough margin on an ongoing basis to overcome my ongoing cost? And, and in the property management world, I mean, your costs don't vary dramatically. I mean, you got to, I mean, you have to make intentional choices to increase or decrease cost, which usually comes in the form of labor. And, and the one overarching metric, you know, in the world of, of, of property management is I need $2 of management fee for every dollar of labor I spend, regardless of what that labor does. You do that, you're great. If you don't do that, you're not going to be great. So, you know, it, it's, it's called, you, you, it's the one industry that has the most natural salary cap of all time, you know, to it of you got to, you know, 1.9 to a 2.1 is kind of the range, but I mean, two is really the sweet spot, you know, that industry. And I, 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 there's just not enough other cost involved to matter, you know, at the end of the day. And, and so if you get the labor piece right relative to the feeable income, the rest of it works. And then, you know, like I said, and then you've got a profit number that you can then go back to what we said, if you need more business, okay, you know, what's my marketing strategy? Is it a surge? Is it a drip? And which may be a little of both. And I got to hold it accountable and say, you know, for the last 12 months of contribution margin and the last compared to the last 12 months of marketing spend is my signal of spend creating more value or less value. And, you know, now it can create a little bit of less signal, but more volume. Okay. I can live with that, you know, but, but if my volume isn't substantially increasing and that signal rate is going down, you know, I, I got to go back to the drawing board with the strategy of the spin. The dollar amount of the spin is rarely the issue. It is the way you spend it is the issue. And the subject matter of what, you know, like I said, sometimes you're trying to put lipstick on a pig and, you know, you might want to go work on the pig first, you know, so. Yeah, that's so interesting that you, you know, earlier during this conversation, you were talking about kind of like identifying like the customers that you want to go after, the customers that are a good fit for you. And typically that is tied to customer lifetime value because the customers that you know are a good fit tend to stay longer. And so instead of them churning after like a year or two, they just keep paying you money. So you don't have to spend money to acquire a customer to replace them. Yet you don't like the concept of customer lifetime value. Um, No, because it's not a constant yield. And, and see that, you know, that that's my my complaint with lifetime value uh-huh. customer is you're trying to calculate a, a yield number. And it's like, no, 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 no. I, I, you know, I need, you know, I am a big fan of what is my profitability by customer this year, this quarter. You know, yes, I absolutely want to know those things. But it's a it's a much more dynamic situation of understanding mm-hmm. that profitability of that customer ebbs and flows. And yeah. it's, it's almost never going to be constant. And so, you know, if you are a software as a service, you know, company and literally, you know, it's, um, you know, once you get that customer, you've got a really predictable, you know, 90% of them will stay for 10 plus years and 70% of them will stay for seven years and, and so forth. You know, you, you know, some of those, you know, but, but you've got a very consistent output because you're not servicing that customer. Mm-hmm. You're just keeping the, the software working uh, with the latest browser updates and, and the server working. Mm-hmm. And, and then you make your money. In dynamic businesses, 
you know, I, I can have a really great client this year that we were very profitable on and we don't make as much money on them next year. I, I, I could end up changing staffing situations. I could, you know, they could become more needy. They, you know, in our service world of servicing a client, you know, they have a, a, a staff change and I've got to interface with somebody different on their team who I've got to now re-educate what I've just told somebody else for the last five years, but they don't know us. They don't know how we got to here. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so once again, it's not constant. And so therefore the return calculation, I think is just a farce, you know, for the most part. Yeah. So what I'm hearing but, is you are all for customer lifetime, taking note how long they stay, but that it's irresponsible to simply bundle kind of like right. simplify it through customer lifetime value. Like how much money did we make from them this year multiplied by how long they're likely to stay is kind of irresponsible. Right. Because I will tell you when we're going through customer analysis, mm -hmm. the customers that we're having companies fire mm -hmm. are some of those long-term customers. Mm. I totally agree. Cause I, um, I took a customer analytics course and that mm. was um, one of the first lessons that the old method of computing customer lifetime value is just plain wrong because mm -hmm. people don't operate that way, right? That's right? You know, especially in property management, even if the customer remains the same, their rents could change, their family situation could change. They might need to like, you know, do something else. Um, and so you can't rely on a stagnant number, um, but it's good to know that they're still there. And knowing that it's not a stagnant number, you need to actively work to keep the prof to keep that client profitable, right? Right. right. And then to also be looking out for if there's no way to keep that client profitable, you have to cut them. Yeah, that's right. And and it is it's almost impossible to keep the legacy people priced at what the current people have have to pay. Yeah, and, that's and that's they, always a tough one, right? You it's it's common for like cable companies, right? Like you see this promo that like new customers get this price and you're like, wait a second, they get a better deal than me. And then the legacy people always want the deals for the new people. Um, and then there's always this, this feeling of being neglected when in fact, like, yeah, but your price, you know, was kind of subsidized a long time ago. And now we're doing this introductory offer and then we're going to increase the price six months down the road. So right. that's why, yeah, really it, tricky. It can, it, can, it can bite you on either end. You know, but yeah. I would say like for us, I mean, the biggest issue is, uh, you know, when we have to push the monthly prices of our ongoing work, you know, it's like we're, it, it's still difficult for us to push them up as much as we're charging a brand new customer for that same service. Uh -huh. And yeah. And, and, and once again, ours is a very labor driven service. And so mm -hmm. as labor becomes the most sensitive element to inflation, it, it is tough to bring those people along and, and you're and you're continuing to get margin compression on those legacy customers because you're not getting pricing to adapt and it matters. Yeah. And so out of curiosity, given that, you know, you also have a service business and you're having to increase prices for legacy customers, mm -hmm. um, are you finding that you're experiencing a lot of churn because of increasing prices or just a lot of bark, but no bite. Uh, some churn, but I'm okay with it because I'm not going to, you know, I, I can replace, you know, I, it, yes, we're having churn, but it's not keeping us from growing because there is somebody we want, you know, so I have to make a decision, you know, if, if I want to grow more rapidly top line, I'm, I'm going to be accommodating on the legacy pricing and create this bigger and bigger gap. And I'll grow faster, but I won't be as profitable. And I, I just resist that idea. And it's like, no, I mean, this is what the price is. You either like it or you don't and have a great life. And yeah, I there's think somebody else who wants that slot on the calendar. So Yeah, I think that's a really um, important thing to note for our listeners who are running property management companies. I think there's this fear of adding on fees, like whether on the owner side or the renter side. And this fear that like, oh, but if I increase prices or if I add a fee, they might leave and then, you know, I don't want them to leave, but you know, sometimes you need to trim. If you, if you don't, if you don't increase the price, the worst thing can happen is they might stay. <laughs> and then you yeah. lose more money. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, you know, you, you've got to keep the, you, your profit model 
you know, valid. And this is, we're seeing more challenges at the moment than ever of, even if you're growing, those people are struggling to be profitable because like I said, that profit number on the hunter company model is stuck and that's not good. That, that eventually causes a problem and something breaks. And, yeah. and so well, you, you, so so you got to keep pushing. So yeah, Phil, yeah, great. Enjoyed it. Hopefully it helps your listeners and uh, keep up the good work. And that's a wrap for this episode of the property management show brought to you by four and half marketing agency. With over a decade of expertise in the property management marketing field, we have dedicated ourselves and made it our mission to help property managers like you get more owner leads to grow your business. From website design, website creation, search engine optimization, to content, reputation management, pay-per-click advertising, we've got you covered. Visit 4andhalf.com to learn how we can help you reach new heights. That's F-O-U-R-A-N-D-H-A-L-F.com. And if you are enjoying our podcast, please show us some love by leaving us a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app. We have a lot more in store for this season, and so check back often and see you next time.